0: better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. As we are live, my little technical pleasure at the beginning with a streaming to Twitter, folks, welcome to today's episode of the Survival Podcast, episode 32 to 38. And I've got Michael Whitman. He'll be on with us in just a minute. Charman of the Board, at Blue Sky Biochar. I went out over the past few weeks and did as much research as I could on biochar. It's something I've always been interested in, but I've never really uh, integrated it into my systems at home. I've since done that. I went out and listened to everything I could find, every podcast I could find, every video on it. And Michael was the guy that I was like, this is the first person I want to expose my audience to because he makes it approachable. He can talk it at at that high level about what it's doing across the world, but also what you can do and how you can do it very simply in your own backyard. So we'll have him on in just a moment. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is Start9. Start9 lets you take back your digital sovereignty. Um, Everybody does everything today using the cloud. So somebody else has all your pictures. Somebody else has all your data. Somebody else is monitoring every communication you do with anybody you do it with. Somebody else is in control of your finances. Somebody else is in control of everything about you online. It doesn't have to be. You don't have to be really like super switched on some kind of computer programmer, some sort of super hacker. to use the Start9 suite of services. You get yourself a little server. It's about as big as two decks of cards. You plug it in. You follow the instructions. You set it up, and you can set up your own private chat, your own private password storage, your own uh, file storage, your own picture storage your own Bitcoin node, you name it. You can do it all with Start9. Check them out today at Start9.com. Remember, my members get 9% off all Start9 purchases. Next up today, the Ridge wallet. Ridge came to me, oh, about five years ago now and said, hey, we want to sponsor the show. And I was like, "I, I don't really know how well you guys fit with what we do. And they said, let us send you one of our wallets and you try it out and then let us know. So I carried it for about a month. I put that giant billfold in my back pocket away. I've carried nothing but the Ridge since. I learned a lot about how Ridge protects you from identity theft. All your credit cards, every, your IDs, everything that has a little RFID chip in it. There's equipment you can buy for like 20 bucks on eBay where people can really walk by you and wand your butt or your bag and steal your information. Not when it's encased in titanium. And they also have turned into a really amazing EDC company. And again, my members. 10% off everything that you'll find at RidgeWallet.com. With that, I'm excited to bring our special guest on today, uh, Mr. Michael Whitman, Chairman of the Board at Blue Sky Biochar. Michael, welcome to the show.
1: Uh, thank you, Jack. I'm really happy to be here. This is a really great, you know, uh, venue for me because I really believe so much in what I'm doing. <laughs> And We've got a lot to talk about today. Um, Biochar is a broad subject. There's so many things. Uh, We know there are about 55 uses for biochar, not just as a soil amendment. It has many, many different uses, and we'll touch upon those as we go along.
0: Very cool. And folks, I'll remind you as we do that, if you are in the live chat feed right now, use all caps for at least the first couple words of your question. That way I'll pay attention enough out of my one good eye to see it. I'll start so we can answer it at the end. Where I want to start out with Michael, though, is we were visiting before we started, and he said he's been in the biochar world for 17 years. But I know for a fact his involvement with the environment goes back further than that. Michael, you want to tell him kind of your genesis story as to how you got into Looking out after the environment, taking an active role.
1: Yeah, well, it was um, while I was in high school in 1970. I was 17 years old, and I somehow got involved with the first Earth Day uh, event, and I became a volunteer organizer. And uh, it was an exciting day. You know, we closed Fifth Avenue down in New York City, marked with marched down the the lane with uh, Mayor Lindsay, and 300,000 people showed up. It was the largest Earth Day event ever in history that I am aware of. And uh, it was really quite a lot of fun, you know, marching with everybody. Uh, It was not a commercial thing as Earth Day events are today. It was strictly about the message. Uh, We drew with chalk all over Fifth Avenue. People were in costumes. Uh, It was really a cool event. Now, I didn't realize right then how much it had changed my life, but as time went on, You know, I got more and more uh, involved with environmental issues and other very conscious kind of things. And uh, it's really kind of how it started. Um, About a year after the Earth Day event, um, a high school friend of mine uh, and I were talking. and We said, hey, let's, you know, we were thinking about ways of recycling and doing better things. And we happened to uh, come up with an idea of recycling uh, materials from Shea Stadium where the Mets played. And uh, so we approached the people at Shea Stadium and told them what we were going to do. And, you know, we'd like to, you know, find a way to recycle a lot of the materials that, you know, people were throwing away at the stadium. And they kind of liked it. And they said, well, go out and do some research and due diligence and come back to us. And we did, and we got back to them. They said, we're not interested. And we Mm -hmm. couldn't quite figure out why. And it was about another year later, we were at a little party at a friend's house. His father was a city attorney and he pulled us aside and he says, well, the reason you guys didn't get anywhere was because all the trash removal and all those things that were waste were were money to the trash industry. And of course, at that time, most of it was done by the bent noses, you know, it was a world thing. And oh, they shut us down because first the politicians didn't want to lose their kickbacks and the the companies didn't want us involved, so they just kind of just put the whole kibash on it and, and said, goodbye, don't come back. <laughs> you
0: know, um, it's it's funny you say that. I was working with a company about 10 years ago, doing some consulting for them, that was pitching a kind of biofuels recycling thing in Austin, Texas, of all mm-hmm. places. And again, it's only 10 years ago. They ran into a very similar problem. And I think the bent noses are still there, maybe they've had a nose job, but they're still the same type of people. And they tried to work with that to basically say, "You won't lose your contracts, you'll just take the stuff to a different place." Mm-hmm. And what they got was a very firm, "We're not interested. do you understand us?" Like they literally got threatened by basically like the 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 the, the legalized organized crime that is the waste disposal industry it's It's insane.
1: Yeah, it became legalized. Uh, Interestingly enough, I was in the biofuel business for quite a few years. Uh, Right about the time that I got into biochar, I was in the biofuel industry. I was collecting waste oil from restaurants and facilities throughout uh, Southern California. And uh, mostly what I was doing was filtering the waste oil for people who had converted their diesels to run it directly. And some of the materials that I collected, I sold off to biodiesel companies so they can create biodiesel. Mm -hmm. Well, let me tell you, the big companies that collected the waste oil did not like what I was doing. And for many years, you know, they fought me and they did all kinds of nefarious things to me and everyone else in the industry. Um, I worked on a film called Fuel that Josh Dickel had uh, directed back in 2008. We brought about uh, 25 diesel vehicles up to Sundance. We won the uh, Sundance Audience Award with the film. It's quite a good film. And uh, we were getting things happening to us up there. I don't even want to get into, but basically there were people out there trying to get this film not to show. Well, of course it did. And then we got a a major producer who was an old friend of mine who uh, came in and produced and uh, put some money into it. So there was no stopping it at that point. But, um, yeah, I, I loved doing the biofuel in the initial days, but it was a dirty, dirty business. You know, collecting the waste oil was dirty. And then all the, you know, the, the forces that be tried to, you know, kick us out. Um, when waste oil was first collected, the restaurants would pay to have it removed. And then at a certain point, I came when I came in, I said, well, I'll collect it for free. And the restaurants love that. Well, sure. several years later, the companies figured out how to get rid of me. And they said, we'll pay you to give us your oil. Of course, the contracts were little fine print that if the price dropped down, you wouldn't get very much. And they were only getting pennies on the gallon anyway. Mm. So, uh, you know, it kind of changed around. And then I finally at one point decided that's it. I'm done with this biofuel. Biochar was really growing at that point, And I just closed up uh, Third Planet Energy, which was the name of the company, and uh, created Blue Sky Biochar.
0: Awesome stuff, man. Can can you let's get into that on, on the biochar thing? Because what I love yeah. about that is literally anybody can participate and make biochar. It's, I think it's well, a little absolutely. more approachable. There's so, uh, so many so different
1: cool. ways, so many different ways of making biochar, from simple methods all the way up to very extravagant equipment. Now, of course, the more involved the equipment is, the more values you can take from the sure. feedstock that you're turning into biochar. Um, there is syngas, there is wood vinegar, there's bio oils, there's steam, creating electricity. You can capture some of the CO2, the small amounts of CO2 as the uh, byproduct um, of making biochar. And you can take that CO2 and pump it into greenhouses or into algae mm-hmm. ponds. So, there, you know, the more sophisticated the system, the more values you can get out of it. But talking about it in a simple way for most people who want to do it at home or could do it at home, uh, there's so many different ways. Uh, so
0: can we start out, because I, I, whenever I talk about this, I get kind of, well, then it's just basically charcoal, and it is, but it isn't. Can you start out and just give our folks a basic definition? What is biochar, and what makes it unique from a bag of Kingsford bricks?
1: Okay, good. Well, biochar is charcoal suitable mm-hmm. for soil. Now, unlike charcoal for cooking, briquettes, charcoal lump and stuff, those are not fully carbonized, meaning that there's still some organic material left in it. Biochar is fully carbonized. So all that's really left from that piece of wood, let's say that was your feedstock, is the skeleton. And here's a piece of biochar right here, as you can see. This is a fully carbonized piece of wood that I made it from several years ago. it's very lightweight it weighs one-third of what the original piece of wood weighed now the ancient amazonians which are the most commonly known group of people in the past that had created biochar they did it in a pit in the ground which you can do it in drums you can do it in cans there's so many different ways and we'll we'll talk about a few of those as we move along but being that biochar is fully carbonized nature started creating this stuff approximately 500 million years ago when the first fires burnt the first plants that started to grow on firm ground, because remember everything did come from the ocean. So when plants started to take hold on firm ground, the fires, which are generally lightning or or maybe lava or some other um, way of uh, fires that occurred back then, um, it laid it down and then over time it became part of the soil. Biochar is the manager of the soil. It's not a food. It's not a fertilizer. It's strictly a skeleton of that original wood. And its main purposes or the main functions or or benefits from it is that it can hold up to seven times its weight in water. So the little granules of the biochar and here, you could see all of these little nooks and crannies in here. This is one type of biochar. There are so many different kinds. All different woods have a different structure to them but they're all beneficial now being that it'll hold water that we use it in a granular form that's somewhere between 1 and 10 millimeters and that gives us the most surface area surface area is what we're measuring so what surface area is inside all those nooks and crannies there's a surface and when we quantify and measure let's say this piece of biochar okay the surface area in this little piece i'm holding in my hand is about the size of a football field that's how much surface area there is inside all of these pores here so that surface area allows to hold the water and give us what we would term drought tolerance so there's little reservoirs of these granules in the soil in the root zone the roots attached to it and now they have access to that water whenever they need it beyond what soil will normally provide without carbon in it so the second part of it is the nutrients in our soil when we're adding fertilizers or nutrients to the soil mostly a lot of that nutrient without a place for it to stay will wash away or run off Biochar, if you use proper protocols, will reduce that runoff up to 80 percent. So now there's a little warehouse of nutrients and biology and value for the plants to access in addition to the water. Now, probably my favorite part of the biochar is in these little nooks and crannies and in these little pores, I would consider those to be luxury condominiums from microbiology, both bacterial and fungal. And when they move into this structure and have this structure in the root zone, they expand their their colonies and proliferate. And we build our biology dramatically with the biochar in the soil. Biochar is also carbon negative three to one. Well, simply put, what that means is for every pound of biochar we put into the ground, we have prevented three pounds of carbon gases from going into the atmosphere. So simply how that works is that the biomass that we're going to make the biochar from would normally be sitting around this wood or grasses or whatever it may be. I prefer wood products, woody biomass over grasses, because they make too fine a biochar, breaks down too much. So when we uh, look at this, we say, okay, this stuff is sitting around off-gassing, putting Greenhouse gases into the atmosphere by converting it through paralysis in whatever method you're going to use You're locking all that carbon into the biochar So when it's made it's neutral when it's buried in the ground It's negative three to one that means quite a bit because there's not too many processes out there are three to one carbon negative now there is one more little aspect to this I have been hypothesizing for several years now and talking with researchers and scientists that, okay, I get the research has proven it's three to one carbon negative when you make it and then bury it. But what about the fact that if you're saving water, your carbon footprint goes down. If you're using less nutrients, fertilizers and such, your carbon footprint's going down. And as you build the biology in the soil, it becomes a carbon sink as well. Mm -hmm. So you could theoretically take your carbon negative three to one and go further with it depends on how much you utilize all the aspects of what biochar does. Now, biochar is a fixed carbon. And when we talk about carbon, most people who are gardening or in agriculture or horticulture, um, carbon to them is the compost, worm castings and similar things. This is a fixed carbon. That's the manager. And those are the fuel. And and the energy that allows plants to grow very well. So what we look at is basically um, a a way of taking this charcoal, putting it in our soil, saving our water, our nutrients, and, and increasing our microbiology. And because it is a fixed carbon, it is a permanent amendment. The lifespan of biochar is centuries, many centuries. And how we know this besides modern research is that humans started adopting biochar approximately 8000 years ago. And we know this through carbon dating. But what we don't know is who who they were, how they did it and what was their their functions and how it all worked. We just know it is there in certain regions of the world. But most people who have looked into this a little bit are aware of the Amazon region of Brazil. And the indigenous peoples there, approximately 3,000 years ago, started making biochar, accidentally discovering it. So what we believe had happened was they were cooking in communal fire pits, big, giant fire pits. And the the wood was burning, allowing them to cook. And one thing you need to know about um, wood and charcoal is that wood burns twice. Mm -hmm. First, it burns to charcoal. And Then with the presence of oxygen, it will just go to ash With the absence of oxygen it stays in a carbonous state and the longer you cook it in that negative oxygen atmosphere the more it carbonizes and it becomes what we would call today biochar so As they were cooking and they were taking the charcoal out because down below in that pit, there was no oxygen, but plenty of heat. So everything carbonized really well. But as it built up, they had to excavate it out and chuck it off to the side to continue Mm -hmm. to work. Indigenous peoples of the world, everything they did in their lives was right in front of their face. They were so in touch with nature. They understood everything of the of the processes of nature Because that's all they had. They didn't have the distractions we have in our world today, where most people are paying attention to very little about nature because we're living our lives and there's so much media and stuff out there. So they were very in tune with nature. And as soon as they saw what was happening, where they put the biochar, they said, oh, wow. So they started incorporating it into the soil. The rainforest has amongst the worst soil in the world. There's about six to eight inches of fertility on the top where organic matter is decomposing. But down below, it's pretty barren in the rainforest area. Reason for it is so much rain washes all the nutrients and microbiology away. So they did this for about 1500 years. And in the year 1546, a Spanish explorer, Ariana, comes down the river sees giant buildings along the river, 14 miles of them. The population is estimated at 150,000 when they started. And 1,500 years later, it it rose up to 2.5 million people living there because they were able to turn that poor soil into super fertility. And we know of that soil today as being called terra preta, the indio, the dark soil of the indigenous. And unfortunately, when Ariana came down the river, uh, you know, he was very excited. He was sent there to find gold, didn't realize he found black gold, but he was very excited. And he wrote maps, journals and charts and told his crew, when we go back to Spain, we're going to be heroes. Well, that didn't happen. No one believed him back in Spain. It took 60 years for Spain to send someone else back with his charts, maps and journals. They found the place. But nothing was there. Everyone died from smallpox, influenza, measles and syphilis. Nature had leveled all the buildings and everything that they had done. And it became pretty much lost for 400 years. The beginning of the 20th century, it was the invention of the airplane that changed things because people would fly over these regions and look down and go, wow, why is that so rich there and that Mm -hmm. not? Scientists descended upon the area, first believing that nature had done this, but as soon as they dug in the ground, they knew humans did this for a purposeful reason, because they found pottery chards, bone fragments, shell fragments. What the indigenous people were doing was they were taking their waste and mixing it in with the char, which is what we want to do today, and it it, over this long period of time, the depth of that char infiltration into the soil went down over two meters. So if you go down into the rainforest, and here is a, let me see, I think I have a photo here. Here we go. I don't know if you can see this. Mm-hmm. But you can see on this, this side is the dark soil, and here is the barren soil. And if you step right outside of the region where this is, this is what it looks like. Sure. And you can see the difference in the way the plants are reacting as well. So biochar really managed their system. And the biochar that's there, that's been there for a few thousand years, is still active, still working, still going on today. In fact, over the years, people have gone down there and dug it up and taken it home to their farms or tried to sell it, whatever. And um, that's kind of how all of that happened in in the largest indigenous population that adopted biochar now all over the world other indigenous peoples also discovered it and they had no communication with each other it just so happens that people are in touch with it and they all realize it so cultures all over the world have adopted biochar charcoal and so forth
0: and use numerous outputs. We'll dig into it later with like the wood vinegar. But like over in Asia, yeah. they understand that way better than we ever have. It, it, that yes. was, I learned that from you and I was fascinated. But I, I think the thing is that like all these different cultures used it in different ways because they used it based on what they had, what their lifestyles were like, the soil profile they had, the thing they were trying to accomplish. So like one of the things that I've seen hypothesized about some of the locations in the Amazon is that there's this tremendous amount of clay pottery in there. And so you look at that and you go, you know man did it because, well, nature doesn't make pottery shards. But even though they found some really beautiful pottery, like most of this pottery that they find in there is pretty pedestrian-looking stuff, and one of the theories is they were using these pots as their pots, right? So they'd have a urine one and a solids one because man learns real quick to keep those two apart, and they were, you know, putting biochar with them every time they used the pot, and then they were just burying these pots and maybe even planting into them, and the trees were rupturing them. And that's one way that you could build depth fast. Because one of the things I look at and why I see, resi- I think I see resistance, and there's so many things people like yourself and I advocate for is time preference. So the time preference of these people was seven generations plus. Mm-hmm. The time preference of today is this week, this month, this quarter, this year. If you're lucky, right? Mm-hmm. And so if you're thinking that way, you could build in. Instead of trying to completely do this to what we think of as like a 40-acre field, it could be being done in these kind of gardens and middens, et cetera, across time. And so instead of building fast horizontally, they're building fast vertically. I think maybe at some point they kind of had an evolution like that.
1: Yeah. The uh, indigenous peoples lived on higher land than where they grew things because they wanted to be above where the flooding was. Sure. And that's why they used those pots for urine and, and feces and they brought them down into the lower areas and buried them. And that's exactly right. They did do that. And that was basically what really set off the biochar, because raw biochar is not suitable for soil immediately. If you put it in the ground, you'd have to let it fallow that land for a year or two before it mm-hmm. came around and filled itself with nutrients and biology. Um, there's a few different things about biochar that we want to adjust when we make it and the first thing is is that raw biochar is hydrophobic does not like water the pores inside the pores is very high surface tension it's literally pushing it away it's not hard to change that but that needs that's the first thing that needs to be done is we need to turn it into hydrophilic secondly is the ph of the biochar now most p biochars are alkaline between 8 and up to even 11 however Biochar is not a soil buffer. It does not change the soil's pH. Ashwood and alkaline it, but the biochar does not. Why we want to bring the pH on the inside of the biochar down is because then it becomes habitable for microbiology. So it's for the microbiology that we want to lower our pH, not to worry about what it's going to do to our soils. So when we uh Take raw biochar. There's different ways of fixing that. Now, this, the third part of the biochar is the ash content. Now, good commercial biochar, such as we have and, and others, has very little ash problem because they're a very efficient system for making it. And if there is any ash, they'll generally wash it out. The fourth part is the volatile organic compounds, the VOCs. Now, they are volatile. They do dissipate out at some time, but we want to reduce those down as, as well. So my favorite way of inoculating or transforming or making biochar habitable is to compost it. Because not only does it fix the biochar and make it better, fixing the hydrophobic to hydrophilic, lowering the pH, reducing or neutralizing any ash content, and neutralizing and reducing any VOCs. That's how I like to do it. Now, the compost benefits as well. When we add biochar to our composting, at the end of our cycle, we usually have 1% to 3% nitrogen. With the biochar in there, we're going to, in a proper protocol, we're going to increase that retention of nitrogen 50 to 75%. So that's quite a bit. It also holds the microbiology and protects it better. It speeds up the composting process. So biochar wins and the compost wins by doing them both together. Now, in some jobs and projects that I work on, we don't have time to do that. So we would take the biochar in a large vat and we would add liquid nutrients and biology to it, mix it all together, and then we will be able to use it very quickly. Other methods are you can take the biochar, mix it with existing compost and worm ca- and or worm castings, let it wet it down a little bit, let it set for a while, and it will inoculate. So there are a number of different ways of doing it. Um, I just prefer doing it with compost because we lay compost out constantly. We make a lot hmm. of compost at our at our property. We have a, a, a mind blowing <laughs> compost setup. It's aerated, so we don't have to turn it. Turning but turning compost does release greenhouse gases, it also disturbs the fungal quality of that compost by exposing it to air and light. So by not having to turn it, that's one big advantage of our system. The only time we turn it is when we harvest. Yeah, never
0: turning compost ever again. I started doing a a modified version of Johnson Sioux um, a year ago, and the results of that compost were unlike anything I'd ever seen. Mm-hmm. And now I'm working on adding biochar into that natural process. And I, I held off from getting involved with biochar because I would hear all these complex explanations of all these things you had to do to charge it up. And I was listening to you and you're like, Just put it in compost because it's not really so much charging it up. The words I remember you saying were something along the lines of you need to make it inhabitable. That make it that's habitable. really what you're doing. Make it so it can be inhabited by microorganisms.
1: Yes. Yes. You know, now we most commonly people hear the term inoculating. Oh, we got to get those nutrients and that biology in there or it's going to steal it from the soil, which is, you know, pretty true. But to, you have to fix those other first four things before you add nutrients and biology to it. So that adding nutrients and biology is the bottom of the list, not the top of the list.
0: Yeah, yeah, I. And, like, I had just done, my compost for the year when I heard your podcast, and I was like, damn, because I had three buckets of ground-up biochar sitting in my back shop, and now I've got the piles built. And you said, and saw so this is what I did with it as, like, a stopgap measure, because you were talking about the off-gassing and what you lose. And what you said is when you start drawing from your compost, you cap it with biochar.
1: Yes, so I, what I, mean, if I capped
0: all three of them and then threw like another two inches of wood chips on top of them to slow down evaporation. And like mm-hmm. I, I'll work it in from there. Like I realized that most of my compostables come from I do deep litter with my chicken and ducks. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, every time I throw down a, a layer, I'll just throw five gallons of biochar in the coop with the ducks. And so by the time we go to compost that in the next cycle, it's already completely stocked up with
1: biocarbon. Well, you just made a very interesting comment there as far as the ducks and putting it into their litter because charcoal is the oldest human remedy known. Before there was any natural remedies whatsoever, humans used charcoal for a number of reasons. Um, If you uh, go to a hospital, for instance, with an overdose or poisoning of some sort or some toxicity, the first thing they do is take your vital signs. And the second thing they do is start putting a slurry of charcoal down into your system. That's activated carbon. It's a little different than biochar. and We'll explain that in a bit. But that activated carbon will chelate all those things that are foreign or toxic in your digestive system, bring them into itself, and then take it out of your system when you defecate. So charcoal is that. Animals have been eating biochar since the first fires burnt the first charcoal on Earth. So animals are, are definitely attracted to it, and they know its value to them. So in animal husbandry, biochar plays a major role. Um, I fed it to my dogs for many years. They've lived healthy lives. Um, So there is that aspect to it. It's for health and beauty as well as it is for agriculture. Again, some of the 55 uses of Mm -hmm. biochar. So what happens is when you put it into the litter of chickens and ducks, they're going to peck on it. They're going to pick it up. Chickens will, just like they pick up gravel and use it in their gizzard as a grinder, ingest it, clean their systems out. And if you were, let's say, in a large chicken production where they're very close together, there are respiratory and foot diseases from the ammonia that can be reduced by up to 90% or more by adding biochar to that litter. They'll peck it up, chew it, goes through their system, Now it's fully inoculated, ready to go, pretty much. You take that litter, put it in your compost, and you got another win. So in Australia and New Zealand, they make biochar foods for every kind of animal, from domestic animals, pets, you name it, horses, cows, sheep, everything. They've really recognized that over in Asia, They've really taken biochar to a much bigger level because they've been doing it longer and recognizing it for long. In fact, China leads the world in biochar production, you know, in biochar research. Uh, Same with the wood vinegars or in our case, we call it bamboo wood vinegar because instead of making it from hardwood or softwood, we're making it from bamboo. Mm. The advantage that I like about the bamboo is it's loaded with silica, whereas the hardwoods and softwoods are not. doesn't mean the other ones aren't good. They're all good this mm-hmm. just has a little bit more of an advantage plus unlimited renewable sustainable sure. sources of of bamboo over there and it's yeah. all organic yeah. and so they've been producing it so i've been selling a product called seek bamboo vinegar for many years almost 10 years and i've been pioneering the idea of using wood vinegars here in america and i think that wood vinegar is as important as biochar But let's think about
0: you It is, you
1: know, it really is. Yeah, it's basically what 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 the uh, wood vinegar is is liquid smoke. And I'm going to go over here right now and take a little bit. This is the bottle. Uh, This is a liter bottle. We have it in a few. Let me get that rid of that light there. We have it in a few different sizes, a smaller sample size. This is the liter, and we also have it in 25 liter bulk containers that farmers and landscape companies will buy. And I'm going to pour some of this into a glass here. Oh, my God. (laughs) If you could be in the room with me right now, I smell like a barbecue. So this is what it looks like. It's an amber color. It's very viscous, and it's a very low pH. This is a concentrate. We don't use it straight. We always dilute it down. And depending upon what purpose we want to use it for is the dilution rate, and it comes with a chart, you know, when you purchase it. Um, Very economical to use. This is twenty six dollars for a liter and it'll make a few hundred gallons of material and We use it for foliar application. We use it for soil application And again, just like biochar has many uses This has many uses as well. It's great in health and beauty so in most of many parts of Asia Chinese doctors or OMDs or or, oriental medical doctors will use this For their patients to help with their gut biome now I am not suggesting to anybody on this podcast that you go ahead and utilize this and start drinking it because you have to know how to use it because as much as it's good for your gut biome you can easily upset your gut biome sure so I do get calls occasionally from around the country from people who are of Asian descent Koreans Chinese who said oh my grandmother used it I'm trying to find it you're the first one I found you know, all right, I said, I'll be glad to sell it to you. Just know that I'm not recommending it for internal use unless you know how to use it. Mm -hmm. Um, I put it in my bath when I take a bath. It makes your skin feel fantastic. So there's a lot of uses of the vinegar. And right now, my room smells like a smoky thing. Now, liquid smoke, what barbecue chefs use, is basically this. It's the same thing, except theirs is made from hickory. This one's made from bamboo, but you can easily substitute it. Um, You can make mix it in with a cocktail. Um, Biochar, by the way, um, being that it is an edible thing, um, I have seen biochar or charcoal pizzas and charcoal Moscow mule cocktails. And um, I have photographs of all these different things that charcoal is being made with. It's pretty astounding. Um bamboo vinegar has maybe not quite as many uses as the biochar, but still pretty broad spectrum of what you can do with it. So um I've been so excited with this bamboo vinegar for so many years now. Um I, I can't tell you every gardener, every farmer should have this as one of the tools in their repertoire of what they're doing for their plants. So
0: And what I've read about it, and correct me if I'm wrong, like the two biggest things that gardeners and farmers would do with it is, one, that it improves germination if it's sprayed on soil or in starting pots if you uh, it it accelerates germination rates. And the other was that if it's sprayed on plants with the right timing, it's also a very good pest deterrent.
1: Yeah, it's a biostimulant because this vinegar, unlike apple cider or white vinegar, which are very different, those are fermented. This is pyrolygenous acid, so basically it's liquid smoke. The smoke is condensed into a liquid form. It has hundreds of organic compounds that stimulate plant growth and photosynthesis, so it is a quite a bit of a different kind of thing. Um, when you talk about germination, well, that's one of the things that I love about this vinegar is that when I germinate seeds, Okay. what I do before I do anything is I take one quarter ounce of bamboo vinegar to one quart of water, put it into a bowl, take a stainless steel uh, strainer, put my seeds in it, lower into the liquid. Oh, wow. Let it sit there for 20 to 30 minutes. Now, if the seeds are very hard shelled like some beans or even an acorn, I would let it sit for many hours because it takes a little longer to get through that hard surface. And what you'll find is that the percentage of seeds that germinate is going to expand much greater. Even very old seeds. I have taken 15-year-old seeds and brought them back. When they, After I've done the soaking and I put them in the ground or whatever method you're going to do to germinate them out, they come up earlier and healthier. My garlic will come up one to two weeks before it normally would without this soaking process. So, it, and you can also, by the way, add other things to that liquid to soak, like EM1, maybe a little compost tea extract, whatever you choose to. I just do the bamboo vinegar alone because I'm building my, soil, my living soils with so many things. I don't need to add it to that seed, but nonetheless. Um, another thing about seeds, if you want to store your seeds for a long time, you take some fine biochar powder, put it into a container with the seeds, shake it up. You don't need very much, just enough to have a light coating. And those seeds will store for years longer and much healthier because it's preventing any kind of mold or diseases from occurring. So using the biochar powder to store the seeds and then take those seeds and soak them in the bamboo vinegar, you got a major advantage right there.
0: When you talk about biochar, and I don't mean you personally, I mean in general, when people who are informed about the subject talk about it, it almost sounds like it's too good. Yeah. It almost sounds like you're pitching Amway in 1983 or something, right? Yep. Like, but all this stuff can be backed up. Like, like we need research. No, we don't need research.
1: We, we have example after, of it. example after
0: example of this stuff working, right down to the economics of it. And I want to steer into that a bit, but can we start out with like people that are listening to this uh, after the fact, during whatever, how can people make biochars? I think that most of us, have waste streams on our property or we have waste streams near our property. And if we don't do it, no one else is going to do it. I I think one day there might be like, you talk about fights over the biofuels, the oils, Mm -hmm. right? Like that could happen one day if this gets big enough. But right now there's an unlimited amount of material, probably within two blocks of the average suburbanite. And for people like me on a small urban rural fringe property, I will, I will never run out of prunings, trimmings, dropped off wood chips.
1: Like, so how can people turn that into biochar for themselves? Well, it's pretty easy, and there's many different methods of doing that. Uh, the first thing you want to know is you want the uh, the uh, biomass to be dry. You don't want it to be wet. If you if it's wet and you're using a simple system, you're probably going to get a little bit of smoke, which will look like steam. Um, so you can do it in a pit in the ground. I don't think we have enough time to explain all the different systems. Sure. But you could do uh, what we call a retort, which is a 55-gallon drum with a 35 gallon drum within it. You fill the 35 gallon drum with the material you want to make the biochar from, put that into the 55 and this, the empty space between the two drums. You'll put some wood down in there and you'll light it. Now these drums have certain holes in them in a certain you know, um, uh, pattern that allow the gases to keep circulating so that they keep burning so you don't get smoke. Smoke is where all the greenhouse gases is. If you're having no smoke, you're not giving off any greenhouse gases. They're going to be continually burned in the system. On top of the 55, when you put the lid on it, there's a big hole in the top, and you put a little stack on there about four or five feet tall to make the burn even more efficient. So you light that wood on the outside of the 35 drum from the top, put the lid on, put the stack on, and as it starts to burn down, it heats up that inner container that's indirect heat without oxygen as that wood burns down it carbonizes now as the material inside the smaller drum starts to Mm -hmm. carbonize it gives off its its organic material which is a syngas and it stokes the fire even more so Mm -hmm. once it gets going it's actually providing more fuel to continually carbonize that So that's an indirect heat. Now, some people will use like the pit in the ground, a bigger dig pit. We build a structure of wood, you know, sort of like Lincoln logs going up above the surface. We light it from the top, not the bottom. If we light it from the bottom, it's just going to be a pile of ash. If We light it from the top. As it burns down, it stays charcoal. And we end up with a bed of coals on the bottom of that pit. Then we start. Layering in wood, dry wood, of course, wood on top of that and create a layer, whatever thickness, you know, you you decide to do as that burns and carbonizes. The next layer goes on and every layer blocks the oxygen from below. So all that charcoal from below just fully carbonizes and produces very little ash. When you get to the top, there is different methods of stopping it. Um, You can either quench it with water but of course all that water is just going to waste and flow through or you can bury it you can wet it and then bury it with some dirt let it smother out and over time a day or two you'll open it up and you'll have biochar carbonized in chunks and you Mm -hmm. want to turn that into a granular now the granular as we mentioned earlier is one to ten millimeters there we are um the powdered the fine powdered biochar Is not bad, but it doesn't have as much water, nutrient, and microbiology holding ability as the granular. If you get too big in a chunk, you're wasting the interior. Mm -hmm. So the most efficient surface area and all the aspects is in this granular form. And that's what we prefer to use. To
0: reinforce what you're saying, we'll go back to that electron microscope for those that aren't watching the video. So you're looking at the pores of the biochar, and when you look at that surface area, you have a a piece of biochar the size of a a small seed that has the surface area of a house, basically, kind of the ratio. And you were mentioned, like, getting it into this granular form. So I kind of came by a method of doing this because I was going to go, and I don't really need one, though, uh, but because of you, I was going to go buy a steel leaf vacuum. Uh, because I heard you mention that, that you could just basically vacuum it up and it makes it kind of perfect in the bag. Yeah, pretty but good. I have a, uh, an old screen door from an aviary I built for quail, and it has half inch hardware cloth on it. So I had some mm-hmm. fairly damp char that I had just quenched, and I threw it onto that and pushed it through it with a uh, hoe. And I mean, it like half of it went through anyway because it shatters when you quench it. Yeah. And then I kind of chop it up with a flat shovel in the kiln. And I pushed it through there and it went right through down to a half inch. So I went and I haven't done it yet because it's freezing outside. Uh, we had a big storm come in the last couple of days, but I bought some quarter inch hardware cloth and I'm just going to take the other side of the door and take the half inch off and put quarter. And I think if you push it through both of
1: those, then you're going to have, use, a, I might use eighth of an inch as my final. Eighth. Yeah. <laughs> then you'll get down to that more quarter. granular size. You'll have a little bit, you know, with a quarter inch, you'll still have pieces bigger than 10 millimeters. Okay. You know, so maybe somewhere. I'll do that We're like maybe it might it.
0: need to be in three stages too, because it was really yeah. easy to get through the half. Um and you yeah. just like push it with the the uh the hoe. And I mean yeah. I did five gallons of it in like two minutes. It wasn't like right. it took right. a lot of time to do it because it just No, it doesn't. It doesn't.
1: Now if it's really dry, it's gonna be very dusty, so do wear a mask. No, 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 wet. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's if it's wet, that's great. But when it's dry, okay, biochar is healthy for your internal systems of your body, healthy for everything except your lungs. Yeah, so don't breathe in the powder. Avoid that. It's not very good.
0: So what are your thoughts on like the cone or pyramid kilns? I know you sell them with pyramid kilns on your site. for Well, I haven't moves. really
1: been focusing on that. But when I first got involved with it, we made cone kilns and I was introduced by Kelpie Wilson from Wilson Biochar Associates, a very dear friend of mine at a uh, biochar convention quite a few years ago. And I was intrigued. I went home right away and found the material and a a maker for it. I showed him the diagram. He made me a few. But the cones are very expensive because you have a lot of wasted um, metal in the sheet. Then you have to have a special bending process to bend it into that cone. And when we started making them, they were costing me $400. How can I sell them for much? Yeah. You know? So then Kelpie said, hey, you know, we've we've started making them in pyramids. And it's much easier because all you have to have is five pieces of sheet metal, four trapezoids, and one square for the bottom. And then we put a little bit of angle iron around the top to give it rigidity. And now I was able to sell them for $400 and have a little bit of profit in there. So I prefer, and I like the, the uh, pyramids better because After you when you're using the pyramid and you've layered all your material and you're pretty much done, you got everything at the top and it's fully carbonizing. We take we usually keep a bunch of buckets of five gallon uh, water around us and we pour it in to instantly quench it. Some people stand Mm -hmm. there with a hose, but that takes too long. So we put this water in there, quench it out, and then we retrieve the water through the corner by pouring it into other buckets. And we use that on our compost or in our growing beds, wherever it may be, uh, because that water has value. And here in California, we are so water you know conscious. Sure. So every drop we want to you know try to conserve. So I like that the that aspect that we can retrieve that water again. So after we've quenched the biochar, then we'll generally lay it out on the ground, let it dry, and then turn it into a granular form. And well, a- by the way, I also in the water. I put bamboo vinegar because it oh. immediately starts reducing the pH of the biochar. Okay, that's. And opening up the uh, hydrophilic to making it hydrophilic instead of hydrophobic. So we do add um, between a half and an ounce per gallon of the bamboo vinegar into that water to quench that biochar. Now we yeah. have, th- there are a lot of uh, clean cook stoves in the world. And I've been working with Clean Cook Stove. I have a whole collection of stoves, some I've made, some I've bought. If I see a new stove out there, I go out and buy it. Um, For years, I had a stove that I got from India. We called it the Champion. And it was pretty good. Um, You know, it was all right. But after a while, we ran out of them and the manufacturer started cheapening them. And then they decided no more exporting to America for whatever reason. So we were out of uh, stoves for a few years. And then a friend of mine, whose name is Dr. Paul Anderson, we know of him as Dr. Ludd. Top Lit updraft is one of the processes of making biochar. And he came to me because we were friends and he says, hey, I'm working on a stove with a, an engineer in South Africa, Dave Lelo, and we want your input. And we want to know if you want to be the U.S. distributor of this. And I said, absolutely. So we developed this fab stove and this is really a really amazing stove. It's so incredibly efficient. In cooking. And what I mean by that is most clean cook stoves, when you light them and get them going, there's an erratic flame coming out of the top. And you'll also notice on the bottom of your pot, there's a whole bunch of carbon built up on there. This stove does not have a flame shooting out. It's designed to create a vortex inside the top of the container right below the pot that whips around and makes a great amount of heat with no, almost no pollution whatsoever. It's extremely efficient, and it leaves no carbon on the bottom of your pot. Now, when you're, this, this stove also has an advantage. is It creates a higher quality of biochar than typical clean cook stoves, because in a clean cook stove, when you're done cooking, you can't leave the material in there because it'll just turn to ash because there's so much oxygen moving through. So what you do is when you're done with those, the uh, conventional stoves, you pour it over into a metal pot with water to stop it, and then you have some biochar. But it's not fully carbonized, all of it. It's, It's a little bit all over the place. This stove, when you're done cooking, you pull the chamber out, lay it on a flat surface, put a little disc of metal or a dish on the top, let it cool down as that's happening it's fully carbonizing all that material and now you've got a small batch of very high quality fully carbonized biochar and this this stove can hold a 50 60 70 pound pot on it um, it's 11 inches by 11 inches by 14 inches tall it runs is a little teeny fan in the bottom that circulates the air it's not for 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 the cooking it's just circulating the gases so they keep burning and making an efficient burn There's a um, a lever at the bottom. That's the vent on the bottom and you can adjust that and there's a two-speed fan and uh, You use a little bitty uh, USB battery of some sort we've been providing a solar charged battery, but unfortunately we ran out of them Mm. and we're not providing them at this moment But any little battery or USB source will work. And there's a long cord. You can't see it, but it's underneath is about a two and a half foot cord there. So you can plug it into pretty much anything you want. Um, Beautiful design. Just wonderful uh, and easy to use. You can take it camping. I've got a lot of friends who live off grid and they use them. Uh, Camping, you know, backpacking. I mean, not backpacking, um, um, tailgating parties, wherever you want to cook outside, unconnected to the world this is the stove to do now we generally recommend using wood pellets with this because the pellets are dense
0: mm-hmm. and they
1: stick densely in there with enough airflow to move around them if you put wood chips or sticks or other things there's there's not enough fuel so you get a shorter burn and maybe sure. a little temperature but with the wood pellets you fill it up to there's inside the chamber there's little holes at the top just below the holes um I use a little gel starter, or you can do whatever way you want to start it, and then once it starts, you turn the fan on and you're pretty much in a minute or two ready to cook
0: it's It's pretty impressive, and I think when you look at the efficiency of it and you look at what a forty pound bag of wood pellets are, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, they are about have nine high, bucks. you know high density fuel because they're designed to be high density fuel and they have a relatively small area to get that fuel into it right. because it's so efficient it's kind of the opposite issue with when you're making your own biochar and some of like these uh like the the i can't the retorts or whatever like if you're using too fine of a material it won't fully pyrolyze but right. in this you industry, have to have some airflow
1: you want it. very fine material right right um, the wood pellets are about nine bucks for a 40 pound bag and you'll get about 25 burns out of that bag. So that's pretty cheap fuel.
0: That's pretty cheap
1: fuel. Now, you can also use wood chips. I've tried it with a lot of things and the, the best is the wood pellets. The chips are next to it. Um, not quite as long a burn. Usually you can get oh, about an hour or more uh, with the wood pellets.
0: That's plenty for the kind of cooking you're going to do in that situation, too. And yeah. You can always just do it again.
1: There's a wonderful video on our website on the fab stove. So I encourage people to go and watch it. Um, So, yeah, this is a really great clean cook stove. I'm very, very happy that we have finally have something like this back in America again. Now, there are many other clean cook stoves out there. Um, A lot of the decent ones are more expensive than ours by quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Ours is $199. And that's a great value for what we we have, especially because it's so engineered so well.
0: It's available on your site, Blue Skull Sky Biochar, and I'll have links Correct. to that.
1: And it comes week. with a small bag of uh, pellets to give you your first bird in case you hadn't gone out and buying bought any yet.
0: Gotcha, gotcha. So we'll we'll have links to everything in the video notes below. Goes over to the audio notes, and like all the individual resources are linked to from the audio notes. Uh, and most of our folks are on the audio side
1: anyway. Um, do you yeah. have more about? I need I need to. Oh, I, need to I, I need. I hate to do this. Yeah. I need to take about two minutes. I have a not a very good bladder. I, so I understand. Mind, just talk for a second. I'll be right back. We, I we need will take a three-minute
0: interim discussion. Uh, I, I do have a lot of questions coming in from the audience. Some of these I can handle. So while we're waiting on Michael, um, I'll handle a few of them to condense this. Uh, but Tori W. says, The idea of selling biochar from my backyard is intriguing because I'm going to try mushroom growing under my black walnut tree. Mushrooms and black walnuts should not be a problem, but I really am not a mushroom guy. What I'll tell you though, is if you're making biochar and you're making mushrooms, then what you actually want to sell is your your mushroom compost, your spent material with the biochar incorporated into it, at about a ratio of about 10 uh, percent biochar to the compost. That would be a great uh, product that's already inoculated and ready to use, because if you sell somebody biochar and they're not really sure how to use it and they're not doing uh, proper inoculation of it, they might come back to you and be very angry. Uh, several of the people doing well selling biochar right now are only selling it in composted mixes because of that very thing that the customer may, or may not be educated to some of the things that Michael's been talking to you about and he hasn't turned. Uh, that if a person just, let's talk about more what we can, oh, he left again. Sorry. <laughs> Uh, But if, if you take and just throw down a bunch of biochar onto a field, you can actually have negative results from that approach in your first or even your second year until that char becomes inoculated and habitable and infused with life. One of the ways I've heard it described when we're adding biochar to a soil system is it's like a coral reef. So when coral begins to form a reef in the ocean, More and more things stick to it. More and more life forms begin to build off of it, and it gets larger across time if damage is not being done to it. Well, with like the biochar reef there, as these soil microorganisms begin to take up residence um, into these, these beautiful little apartments, basically, that the biochar provides for them, they actually begin to build upon themselves. And the total mass of life increases beyond what the biochar alone could do within those within those those components and pieces parts. So I I think it's definitely uh something that's been heavily underutilized at this point now. But yeah, if you were going to do mushrooms, I would look at marketing the mushrooms uh compost with the biochar integrated into it. Uh and then Lauren, what benefit is biochar over plain wood chips in a garden? It's tremendous. It's like asking what is the difference between apples and dogs? We're in a totally different world. Uh, They're both made of organic matter, but they're totally different things. So if we put wood chips down, they do a lot of good. I'm king of wood chipping. I wood chip everything. Um, I get every wood chip I can get from the highway crews and stuff like that. uh, I'll I'll do, I'll, I'll bribe them with 12 packs of Coors Light, Bud Light or Miller Light, whatever one they want that day. But when we put wood chips down, it is a temporary solution to a long-term issue because those wood chips will be colonized by bacteria and fungi and all the wonderful stuff and earthworms will eat them and they'll break down and by the time you have maybe a six inch pile of wood chips break down at the soil level you have great looking soil but a very small amount of the organic matter from those wood chips remains and a lot of the the components of it the the nitrogen all those minerals all the things if it can off gas Remember, nitrogen is a gas. It off-gases. It gets released into the atmosphere. It doesn't stay in the soil. So for all the good it does, it is a temporary solution to a long-term problem. When we bind up something like biochar into the soil, you've basically created something that's going to outlast you, your kids, your grandkids. I think people sometimes hesitate to say how long it really lasts because we, we don't really know. But we know there's systems that are over 1,000 years old, that still have viable biochar in them. So I I think if we've done something that lasts a thousand years as a mortal, we've done our part. So anyway, Michael's back. I don't know how much of that you heard.
1: I can hear a little bit of it. Yes. You're very, you're right on that. Cool. So uh, let's talk about uh, biochar as far as some of the things that it does. You know, one of the things that we have out here where I live is clay. Um, We are clay city out here. Um, so let's talk about uh, soil for a second and keep it very simple. Normally, when we talk about soil, there is a soil pyramid, which is this right here. It's kind of complex. It has different you know, loamy, clay, so forth, sandy. So let's just keep it linear for a second and keep it simple. So on one end, we have sandy soil and on one end, we have clay soil. The different, or well, the problems with sandy soil is that water, nutrients, biology, everything just rushes right through, no place for it to hold for the roots and the plants to have access to it. So if we add biochar and organic matter like compost to that sandy soil, we can convert that sandy soil into a loamy condition, which is the ideal soil we're looking for. Now, on the opposite end with clay, clay is very dense, has very high surface tension, but it has a lot of nutrients and water in it. Now, with the biochar being incorporated into the clay, now normally I'm a no till person. I don't till my soils. Just gonna close my door here. So here's somebody coming in the house. <laughs> and um, so I will till an area once to get the biochar and the, and the amendments down in there, but I'll never till again. So if you can till your biochar and your organic matter into that clay soil, it will break it up. It's it's pretty much sort of considered a permanent solution for clay soils, but it has to be incorporated into Mm -hmm. it, not just top applied. Biochar is not a top application necessarily. Doesn't mean that there aren't some applications to top apply it, but for the most part we want to get it into the root zone and the soil zone itself. So the Clay soil. Once this, uh, once we get that material in there, starts to become a loamy soil. So we're moving either the sandy or the clay into that loamy center by adding the biochar, organic matter, and also minerals. Um, I'm not sure how many of you out there are mineralizing your soils, but minerals and biochar are at the top of the list of what you should be doing to your soils. And we add both of those to our soil, and we also add them to our compost. Um, Getting back to the composting just for a second, we have 20 ingredients in our compost. We have our yard waste. We have our food waste. We have manures. We have coffee. We have shredded paper. Uh, We put biochar. We put rock dust. We put uh, bokashi. I don't know if anybody's familiar with bokashi. It's fermented grains. It's a Japanese thing. It's wonderful stuff. It's kind of considered a compost accelerator and a builder of biology and just plenty of different things. We have all these containers outside of our composting barn. We have a big compost barn. It's eight by 10 feet aerated system, as we talked about before, and above on the ceiling there's a, a rain system, so we don't have to stand there with a hose to wet our bio- our compost down. We just turn this thing on, and it rains evenly over the whole thing. To keep it moist but remember biochar will keep your your compost moist much longer than without so there's a lot of advantages in that respect
0: and, and i think it is important to understand that at some point we do need to get it into the soil and there's various strategies for that but i've heard things like people that are retro uh improving situations will do things like uh dig small moats around uh tr- trees that are already in place and incorporate Uh, composted biochar into those to begin to build out that network and as I was saying when you were stepped away for a moment one of the analogies I've heard is that it's kind of like creating this uh, coral reef type structure that the biochar in the soil literally doesn't just enhance life but then life begins to attach to it and spread out
1: right exactly that's a very good point so let's talk about application of biochar and obviously if you're planting a new plant or a new tree or something that's the easiest time because sure. you're going to put some in the bottom. And as you layer in the soil around the tree around the tree or the plant, we're going to be incorporating this mixture. It could be a compost with biochar. I will put um, inoculated biochar, worm castings, compost and rock dust and mycorrhizae into that blend and bl- build it up around the tree or the plant. Then when I'm finished with the top, we will take some of that, the rest of that native soil that we have and lay it on top, and then cover with mulch. Mulching is very, very important. Um, it protects the moisture in the soil. It protects the sun from heating down on the soil and destroying the microbiology. As the, comp- as the mulch deteriorates and decomposes, it feeds the mycorrhizae fungal. And when water goes through mulch, it creates humic acid. So these are the, the benefits of having mulch on your on your ground. Now, if you're working with an existing tree Or an existing plant, you would do exactly what you said. I call it the donut around the tree. So it's basically about a foot from the tree out to the drip zone. I excavate as much as I can and do it by hand. Don't do it, you know, don't dig it with a machine or anything because you're going to disrupt the root systems. And like things like out here, we have a lot of citrus and avocado. They're very shallow rooted. So we can find those roots pretty quickly. We'll put our blend of materials in there cover with the native soil and then go ahead and mulch and then every time we do an application like that after we're done we soak that tree very deeply the first time very deeply most trees don't like water a little bit constantly Mm -hmm. they like a bunch of water you know real deep watering and then not for a while yeah that's really what nature is doing also trees When the water is coming down from the rain on a tree, most of it is going out, not going down the trunk of the tree. Correct. So we never want to water right at the base of a tree unless it's a very small new tree. Always want to water out. And that's why we put that material further out, because the roots will go to it. Mm -hmm. When plants and trees sense a nutrient or value, a water value somewhere in that soil, they're going to move to it. When I first started doing biochar 17 years ago, I can't tell you how many mistakes I made. I didn't inoculate it, and I top applied it, and very little happened. In fact, the opposite of what I thought would happen, happened. So making mistakes is a good thing. You, know, you learn from them. Just don't continually make them. And part of what I've been trying to do is trying to eliminate those mistakes that people that are listening, and my clients, and people that I speak to, and my engagements that I do, is that I've never made the mistakes, learn from what I did. You know, because not only are you wasting time and money, but there's another factor. It's called the aggravation factor. When you make a mistake, you get very aggravated. And sometimes you get disillusioned and you say, ah, I'm done with that. I don't want to do that again. Oh, that didn't work. It'll never work. Yeah, it does work.
0: Absolutely. So, Can we talk about more ways we can use biochar and maybe speak a little bit about the economic opportunity that's here? Because I see this for backyard gardeners. It kind of is what it is. They're either going to make their own or they're going to purchase product from a company like yours. Mm -hmm. The small scale farm seems to have an opportunity to eventually convert enough of a waste stream into biochar because it's a permanent amendment. They've kind of done what they've done. And then then they're creating stability for that farm or that greenhouse operation or what have you because they have a product that they can sell, whether it's to local gardeners or, I mean, on larger scales, like like in that carbon offset market, which I'm not exactly in love with, but it is what it is. We seem to be getting to a point where there will be an unlimited
1: market for biochar in time. Well, biochar is growing quite rapidly. The permaculture, regenerative agriculture segments. Have really you know jumped into it pretty big uh, for those people who are, have small um go, you know gardens or farms, uh yeah, you can make it absolutely. you could take all your fodder and your waste and make it. Um, I would stick to the woody materials rather than grasses. Hemp you know can make biochar, but most of these grasses and leaves and and um, lighter lignus materials like hemp for instance uh, create too much just basically powder. Mm -hmm. And we would prefer to have the granular over the powder. doesn't mean the powder isn't useful. There is uses for it. But if you really want to get the most out of the biochar for your soil and all the advantages, it's that granular form. And so there is a, uh, a, like I said, there's so many different ways of making biochar. Um, My friend Kelpie Wilson from Wilson Biochar Associates, she has this thing called the ring of fire. And it can be any diameter from about eight feet to about 16 or more, and basically it's these panels that you bolt together, and it's sort of like a big ring, you know, okay. and so it creates its own pit, so to speak, like you would dig in the ground, and uh, you start off the the you know lighting at the uh, material in there, and then you just keep chucking it in there, and it makes a big flame, you know, and it and, and it can make a lot of biochar very quickly, very simply. Um, for somebody who's not looking to invest ten, twenty, a hundred thousand, a million dollars into in equipment, so it is one simple way for those that really like that do-it-yourself kind of of uh, of lifestyle where they can make it. And, and again, I, I don't have time to get into all these different processes, but as you look around, you'll see there's so many different ways to make it um, for everybody.
0: And I want to be respectful of your time. You've been with us over an hour already, so you tell me. When I'm you good, know. man. I can go as All long right, as because you we'll want. will I'll, I'll so, go Joe Rogan and go two hours. I'll, I'll do it. Uh, and I, with a guest like you, I don't even mind
1: doing it. Um, I do have some I questions. to talk about a couple other things. Sure, um, bring it on. Okay, I got something I think everybody's going to like. Have you ever heard of Shou Sugiban? No. S-H-O-U. S-U-G-I-B-A-N. Shosugiban ban is an ancient Japanese technique of charring wood. And this started centuries ago in Japan. And what, here's a piece that I have right here. This is actually a tongue and groove piece like a wood. basically flooring, although this was used for a ceiling you know, in a, in a custom-made home and I did for this company. So basically what we're doing is we're charring the outside of the wood and it does three major purposes. The first thing is, when you char this wood, it cauterizes it. No critter is going to chew into that wood. No termite, nobody. No Correct. worms, nothing. It also locks out all diseases because it cauterizes the outside. And as you can see, it's a beautiful, the grains, it was best I could do with this picture we have here, but the grains come out really beautifully with it. And we coat it after we're done with an oil, with with a little uh collection of oils it's um linseed oil tongue oil hemp oil and bamboo vinegar because the bamboo vinegar is a penetrator and uh it brings the grain out now if we were to char this further than we did mm-hmm. where it would look like alligator skin that is pretty close to being fireproof because oh, wow. when a fire occurs and the embers are flying through the air when an ember hits this the the flash point for the charcoal is so high that ember can't ignite it, and it just Ah. fizzles out. And in Japan, they have homes that, you know, the siding of the homes, structures outside, fencing, that they do this technique in. And it's been growing quite a bit in the U.S. I'm sure some of your listeners are quite aware of this. If you go onto YouTube and put Shosugiban or even charring wood, you're going to see hundreds of videos. Most of them are just little clips, you know. Yeah. Showing the torch on there and so forth, but I started doing this about ten years ago, and I've kind of mastered it. I've taught workshops on it, and um, it's fantastic. It is just great. In fact, I got this. This particular piece is a sample from a home that we did a ceiling in a custom home in Pacific Palisades. It came out so go so good that I got another one now coming up, another custom home with the same group wanting me to do that. So I'm waiting for them to tell me that the wood is in so we can schedule the time and we just use a roofer's torch. Yeah. I actually
0: actually did know what you were talking about. I didn't know the word for it because I have Ah. a a beautiful workbench I built with my grandson last year and we did Mm -hmm. it. We did it for the entirety of the thing because one, it looks cool and two, it's a great preservative.
1: Yeah, it's great. You know, the wood will last longer than pressure treated wood when you do it properly. Yeah. It's it's pretty
0: amazing what it does. I just didn't know that was the name for it. I knew it was a Japanese technique, but I just never heard the term before. That's cool.
1: Yeah, um, you'll see people doing it on open fires, moving the wood through. Yeah. That's how they did it back then. They made a giant bed of coals, they laid the wood on there and then turned it, and then turned it again, and then they kind of brushed off the, the powder on top, and depending on how far they want to go is how many times they would char it. So sometimes we usually do two to three chars um for the decorative part of it and if we're going to go for that fire resistance part we might do four maybe even five runs of the char- of the torch on there to get it to be that point and then once it's done and cooled down and brushed with it again a nylon brush not a metal brush you don't want to rip yeah. it off you just want to get the powder off the surface then we will go ahead and coat it with the oils and cool. um, and build or apply I'll yeah i built a hundred foot wall with it i had this Uh, Four by 12 lumber, 10 feet long, and I stack one on top of the other. So the wall's two feet tall and it's 100 feet long and it's my food forest. And we did it this about 10 years ago or so, maybe eight years ago. And um, we had all these saw horses with all this wood and I had the crew there and there was the guys torching, the guys brushing, the guys applying the oils. And once we got all done with that, then we took that material and assembled the wall.
0: That's amazing. You have yeah. me going back in my head about thirty years, back to 1991. I was a young man. I was stationed in Panama, and we had a uh, NCO club, and uh, the dance floor was shot. And we actually used untreated ply, and we rebuilt the dance floor, and we torched the whole thing before we finished it. How oh, so cool! Um, yeah, oh, yeah cool. Like I love the, it. Unlimited uses. Yeah. Um, I do have a question. One other, here. Oh, yes, go ahead.
1: Uh, I was going to say I wanted members. to recommend. I want to recommend some books to everybody. Okay. Um, there are three. The first one is an older book, but it's still quite valuable. It's called The Biochar Revolution by Dr. Paul Anderson. He was a NASA physicist. He's an old friend of mine. He's retired now, uh, but he wrote this book uh, a few years back. It's still a great book. And what makes this book so good is that there are 18 contributors to the book ex- expressing their experiences. So it's not a, a technical book. As far as all the scientific stuff, although that some of that is in here. But you sure. get 18 of the top people at that time giving their experiences. So I recommend it. Uh, it's it's out of print, but we have them on our website. The second book, which is the coolest book, period, anywhere, is this one. It's called Burn, Using Fire to Cool the Earth by Albert Bates and Kathleen Draper, both very dear friends of mine and colleagues. Um, Two of the smartest people in the biochar world. And this book is really incredible. It's only a few years old. I think it came out in 2019, I believe. And it touches on biochar in everything you could possibly think about. Now, biochar can be used in cement. You can mix it in plaster. You can mix it in paint. You can mix it in cob, adobe, or many other types of things Mm -hmm. like that. And, in, you know, I'm not going to get into all the technicals of it, but with cement, it lightens the cement, lowers the carbon footprint, makes the cement a hell of a lot better. And the granules of the biochar act like rebar a little bit because they're so rough on the outside that it kind of holds things together. Um, one of my buddies, Ray Sereno, Ray has a property in the Owens uh, Valley, which is the Eastern Sierras. It's a 20-acre 20 20 off-grid property. And he just built this cob composting toilet and we're incorporating okay. biochar into the into the uh clay and everything else uh not only on the cob but also on the coating of it um ray it's called Jack Rabbit project on facebook if anybody's interested uh gray is a permaculture creative guy like i've never met before he's one of my dearest friends super amazing guy Everything he does there on this property, it's all off-grid. They have their own natural spring. So we've been working with biochar there, doing it, mixing it into various things. I've had clients mix it in the paint. Now, here's something interesting. A number of years ago, um, Hans-Peter Schmidt, who was a biochar proponent from Europe, was doing biocharing at a a vineyard in, I believe it was Switzerland. And while they were there, they were replastering the cellars. So he had recommend adding the biochar to the plaster and they did. Well, what they found was that the temperature and humidity in those cellars stayed exactly where they wanted it without much adjustment at all. So that was a big bonus. But the second thing that happened was they were never able to use their cell phones in those basements again because it locks out all electromagnetic and radio waves. So you know what a Faraday room is?
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: Okay. Imagine making a Faraday room with this on the walls Yeah. instead of all that metal and all that other stuff that yeah. you have to use. Yeah. So it really does a great job at locking out, um, you know, those those radio waves and electromagnetic fields. Another kind of quirky thing about it. So what do you thought about the, book, um, oh, by the way, before I go into further, the third yes. book is Regenerative Soil by Matt Powers. If you don't know Matt, Matt is uh, one of the premier permaculture online courses. There are 50 instructors in there. I happen to be one of them. And Matt is really incredible. He lives in Austin, Texas, and he has podcasts and everything. So look up Matt Powers. Look up what he's doing. And this book is this is the kind of book that you're going to use over and over because it's a great resource and many, many different contributors, including Elaine Ingham, Villa. You know, everybody's in this in this group with Matt.
0: Very cool. We do have a question here that I'm interested in because I do a lot with fish ponds and aquatics. Um, Would fish poop uh, from aquaponics work well as an inoculant for biochar? And the thing about that is it's not really just poop. So you have sludge in any kind of large aquatic recirculatory system that's made up of fish poop and a lot of other organic matter. The only issue with it, 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 when you remove it, it is anaerobic because it's settling out on the bottom. So right. to me, I think that would be really good. I would just want to get it into an aerobic state prior to using it as an inoculum.
1: Yeah, I would probably take that and maybe compost it. But here's something interesting about biochar and Bokashi. There's a guy named Quattamag Villa. He's up in Oregon, and he's one of the instructors on uh, Matt's, Matt's course and he's a bokashi expert and he's also quite good with biochar too and uh we were having a discussion about ponds and waterways and what can we do to clean them up and one of the things he does is he takes biochar uh one one way is he takes biochar clay and bokashi and makes balls and chucks it in the water and it turns and it cleans up the waterways cuts down on algae brings oxygen um, it's really a great method. So uh, in my fountain and in my water rain tanks, I have a large mesh bag. It's about a foot and a half long and about five inches diameter, and I mix 90% biochar, 10% bokashi, put it in the bag and put it down into the tank, and it keeps the water clean for a very long time. Pretty much any water feature you can do this with, and there's different ways of doing it, but bottom line is both between biochar and bokashi, you can clean up waterways.
0: It's pretty freaking amazing.
1: Yeah, Uh, it's pretty cool. That
0: that springs right into this about locking up toxins. So Stan says, can you elaborate on the ability of biochar to lock toxins up in the soil? And composting can do that to a degree. But from what I've looked at with biochar, you're talking a totally different level.
1: Yeah, it is. Um, When we put biochar into the ground, okay, or we're using biochar, biochar – let's let's talk about biochar and activated carbon because i know that question's out there somewhere and someone's going to want to ask activated okay. carbon is close to biochar but it's processed a little further mm-hmm. they they'll incorporate steam to off you know to uh, um adjust the pore structure of it activated carbon is what we generally use for an internal medicine but activated carbon only chelates in other words it takes in it takes in it takes in but doesn't give out yeah when we're talking about soil, we need something that has cation exchange. So biochar will take in pretty much everything, but certain things like heavy metals, certain heavy metals, certain toxins, biochar will lock up, stay locked up. And over time, the natural microbiology will break those things down into organic materials again. So biochar has the ability to clean up waste sites and so forth. There's a I have these lists that I get emails every day, like 50 a day, from various list servers that I work with in the community. And uh, some of people are working on, on um, mitigating toxic soils. Some of them are working on this or that. There's so many different subjects. But um, it's been found very useful in cleaning up toxic areas, gold mines, silver mines, um, all kinds of different toxicities that biochar can u- be utilized for.
0: Yeah, I was. Re- I heard one study it was done, or uh, and uh, I guess more like an analog than a study. Like they had this place where they were growing something in one of the Asian countries. I don't know if it was cashews or some fruit, and they changed the uh, the toxicity test limits on, I think, cadmium. Uh-huh. And so, this trees that they were selling into the food system all of a sudden can't do it anymore. It's too high under the new standard. Right. And they they infiltrated kind of like we were talking with kind of a moat technique biochar in at the drip lines mm-hmm. for the trees. And within two years, the toxicity went down below the new standard.
1: I can easily I, see that happening.
0: You know, and I, part of me thinks that it is what you said about like things breaking down over time. and cadmium's not going to break over time, but what happens is we're doing a life system again, like this coral reef of carbon. And so that, that biochar is going to lock something like cadmium up. Now the plant doesn't want the cadmium soil right. microbe doesn't want the cadmium. So right. once the biochar locks up something like it does want, let's say selenium, then we have to have the whole exudate exchange dance, right? Like I give you a little bit of an exudate and microorganism, you give me a little bit of selenium. So there has to be an effort taken to get that exchange to happen at the biological level. Well, since nobody wants the cadmium, well, okay, then nobody's going to work to get the cadmium out. Because right. the more you know the more acidic your soil, the more cadmium that plant is forced to drink. It really doesn't want it. It's not mm-hmm. looking for it. But if it's if it's bound up in there and there's a requirement of energy to get it out, well then none of the soil life is going to willingly give its energy to releasing that thing.
1: Right. It basically the biochar pretty much locks it up. And then you nobody know, and cares enough to break the lock. Right? That it, it takes
0: work to break it, so why would I do it? I don't want it.
1: Yeah. Some things um, we'll break down certain toxins or certain, you know, uh, things that we're not interested in having in the soil and some of them just stay locked up. Yeah. So biochar is a very good way of cleaning out your soils. If you have problems, uh, what mix for acidic soil than Tennessee clay? AG let me read that for
0: folks that are on the audio side. So we have a question here about a mix for acidic soil in Tennessee clay. Ag extension suggests you lime per acre, I'd rather not pay for the soil amendments if there's an alternative. What do you say, Mike? I got thoughts on that.
1: Well, um, you know, biochar has some buffering ability, but it's very minimal. And and our our biochar happens to be at 8 pH, which is fairly low for commercial stuff, because Mm -hmm. some of the homemade stuff could be 10 and 11. But, again, it doesn't really buffer the soil that much. Um, But, you know, yeah, you know, I don't we have no we don't have any acidic soils here. <laughs> yeah. I don't, have I don't either. I'm alkaline. We're all yeah. we're all alkaline here and our water is eight. The water's up.
0: alkaline, the soils alkaline, the yeah. air's alkaline. Exactly. The house is alkaline, the what dog is do, alkaline.
1: <laughs> yeah, so I'm dealing with alkaline soils trying to get them acidic. Uh but for the person people that do have acid soils, uh, yeah, you could do liming, uh be very very careful how you do it. Yeah. Because if you lime it wrong, you're going to have a long time before you can bring it back again. That's just like ash. You know, I do, I've done workshops where somebody will raise their hand and go, oh, my grandfather used to take the ashes out of the fire pit or the stove and throw it in the garden. I said, please don't do that. If you're going to do anything with it, compost it a little yeah. at a time. The composting yeah. will um, eliminate the liming effect. And bring out the natural mineral effect that the ash has. So to neutralize the ash, the best thing to do is to compost it. Or let it sit out out on areas for years following that land, which not many people have the luxury of doing.
0: You know, I always say that focus on the biology. Less on, you know, what a soil extension service is. Focus on developing the biology in the soil. And nature is incredibly reparative. And even if you're a little toward the acid side, there's some something that you'll eat or want to produce that will grow in more acidic soils. That I'm like envious because I can't grow in, in my alkaline soils and Michael can't grow in his. But I find that the more you work with biology, a lot of things that, you know, ag science, which is really a chemical industry worries about, start to not go away to nothing. We can't just ignore it. But they mitigate themselves to such a degree that it's pretty astounding. And I've seen it from climates like North Dakota down to Florida and soil types as sandy as Florida and as alkaline as like the Blackland Prairie where I live. Mm. Um, Biology fixes. I think biology in some ways is more important than a direct measure of fertility because the fertility, there's more fertility in even poor soil than I think people realize, but yeah, the yeah. plants and the, uh, the nothing can access it because the biology is dead.
1: Yep. Well, in conventional farming, you know, where basically the soil is just a medium to hold the roots. Since we're mm. using chemical fertilizers, it's sort of like, you know, addicting them to heroin. They need it, they need it. And then they can't, you know, then they need more. And eventually that system collapses.
0: It's, you know, it's hydroponics soils- on the land, right? It's like, You know, if you do a hydroponic system and you do ebb and flow in clay pebbles, the plants can only get what you put in the water. There's nothing else there for them. And that's what we've turned the most fertile farmland in the world into. We've turned it into basically an inert medium that we dump chemical. on.
1: I have a lot of experience with hydroponics. Um, Actually, the first time I I built a hydroponic system was in 1981 in North Hollywood, California. I had a warehouse and I was growing cannabis. Okay. And I had half of it in hydroponics and half in soil. And it was very obvious to me after the first crop that the soil was way, way, way better. Yeah, you cannot. I'm not downing hydroponics. I'm not at all. But you have to understand the realities of it is that the nutrient density in food grown in, in hydroponics can't even come close to what you can get with soil. And nutrient density, by the way, has been has been. Nose diving down for the last 40 years. Even the best organic markets, they have what we will call safe food, but mm-hmm. not nutrient-dense. The techniques that I do in my workshops, building the living soil, maintaining it, and then doing foliar applications, is going to raise the BRICS level of our plants. Everybody know what BRICS is, B-R-I-X, it's the sugar content of all plants. And the higher you get your BRICS level, the higher nutrient value have and in addition to that when plants have very high BRICS levels insects will not chew on them it's a natural deterrent many plant diseases will not form particularly the fungal ones phytophthora fusarium even powdery mildew for that so by building these living soils and maintaining them and they're regenerative you know, uh, a living soil with biochar, compost, worm castings, rock dust, mycorrhizae and such will actually get better over time as a, as opposed to a typical um, soil that will deplete in a season or two. And then just simple maintenance to keep it going. You know, when we maintain our soils, we do compost, we do worm castings as top applications, and then we do liquid drenches with a number of different ingredients in there. One of them, is, of course, is bamboo vinegar. Because it is a biostimulant, it does protect root zones, and it stimulates microbiology.
0: You know, one of the things I love about this is like almost anybody in my audience that's growing their own food in some capacity, which is probably more than half, um, they have a composting system. And a lot of times when you bring somebody on, like if you brought somebody on the talk, like I had a few months ago about Korean natural farming, right? And it's mm-hmm. all these different, and it's not that it doesn't work. It's like, this this radically different thing that you have to adopt and incorporate into what you're doing. If you start using biochar, no matter how you're composting, you add biochar to your composting system. And next thing you know, you're adding biochar into your soil system. So for me, like I said, just by, adding it every time I add a layer of litter to my deep litter system and like duck and chicken coop. It's, it's now part of the system. Mm -hmm. And so a person that's on a small scale that's doing Bakashi can use it. A person that's maybe a little, you know, doing a worm bin, right? We just start putting biochar into the, now we have biochar inoculated worm castings. We're not going to sit around and worry about, is that biochar ready to go into a soil after it's passed through the gullet of a worm and ended up in worm castings? It's it's ready to go. And it just Absolutely. seems that it's the only thing I've seen that's this powerful. I could end the statement there. But then also can be integrated into almost any agricultural permaculture, regenerative agricultural system. There's just a place that you can naturally find to plug it into something you're already doing without a radical alteration of what that is, assuming you're not just throwing NPK on the ground. Like, if right. you're doing anything from a living earth standpoint, there's a there's an entry point. that You don't have to radically shift your life to incorporate this into it.
1: That's right. And if you're going to feed biocharter worms, that should be a powder form. They can't take in okay. their annual. They don't have teeth to chew it. Now, um, one of my my closest friends has a worm farm nearby. It's called Organic Solution. We are his okay. rep and his distributor. We sell it on our his products. He has three products. He has these premium worm castings that are off the charts. Um, The reason is, is the diet he feeds them and the way he produces. And we only produce product when we need it for our clients. We're not warehousing this. So if you go around and you look on the typical shelf at a nursery or a big box store and you see, I don't want to name any names, but the typical worm castings, um, they call them worm castings because whatever they fed him went in one end of the air worm and came out the other. Yeah, It's the diet they feed them, and plus they dry the castings out to be able to sterilize them and package them. And once you do that, your biology is completely gone. So we have both yeah. bacterial and fungal in our worm castings. And there's actually even eggs and little babies in there. So when you use our worm castings, they produce in your soils. And I, then he I, makes a blend of 80% biochar, which he gets from me, and 20% of his, of his worm castings, along with some humate. And this other product he makes called Ambrosia, which is a liquid worm casting. It's a it's a um, 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 a dormant product that you get. It's got about a year shelf life, and you mix that in with whatever you're doing: foliar application, liquid drenching, seed seed uh, germination, whatever you want to use. So he's got those three products, and um, we found something very interesting a few years back. Um, somebody told me that putting wood, some some bamboo wood vinegar into the water we hydrate the worm bins with, that it's a beneficial. And Brian was a little hesitant at first, so we took one – he does his uh, worm castings in bins, not windrows. Okay. It's a much more efficient, much healthier way for the worms. So we decided that we were going to take half the bin and water it down with plain water and the other half with a very small amount of bamboo vinegar in that water. Within 24 hours, all the worms moved over to the one Whatever. side where the bamboo vinegar was. Now, we're talking small amount, like a quarter yeah. ounce or less per gallon. You the don't time. need much. And yeah. the worms loved it. It's so probably, the it's a
0: biostimulant. It's probably also a stimulant for their feeding because if you think about it, if there was a fire that moved through an area, right, and it left that residue, then there's lots of worm chow for those worms once that, once that fire's gone. So
1: Yeah, it takes time for the char to get down there. Like in natural fires, yeah. it sometimes takes a few decades before that yeah. char that's left behind on that fire really gets down and doing its work. Um, you know, nature is very slow about doing things because it doesn't have a clock. It just does it at its own pace. And as so I, I mentioned breath, earlier, we as humans have a very short lifespan, and we want everything yeah. immediate, you know instant gratification so we as humans have made biochar in a clean way using it in our urban areas just like the fire would come through fire is essential to the ecosystem but we don't want our homes and businesses to burn down so by mimicking nature and making the biochar in a very clean way utilizing it making the wood vinegars in a very clean way and utilizing it we're getting the positive effects of what fire does without having to have the fire Biomimicry is the coolest thing that we we can do in, in our properties. Mimic what nature's doing and do it better.
0: Here's another question from our folks here. Tree service drops me 1,000 pounds a week, some fresh, some dry. I'm guessing he means wood chips. Is this a practical starting material? I have space and the means to build a kiln. I think it depends on what kind of kiln you build when you're dealing with wood
1: chips. Right. It depends on the system, but the ba- main thing is the wood chips have to be dry. Yeah. Like if you're doing a commercial system, a big commercial system, which starts off with either natural gas or propane, to start off the process, and the wood chips are wet, you're going to spend so much of that energy just to dry them out, so make sure they're dried out if you're wood if you're using wood logs in a in, in, in a method, uh, put the wood logs up a, above the ground a little bit like you'd stack cord wood. You know, with a little airspace between them and let it dry out. Um, you can buy a, on Amazon a little moisture meter for about $20, $25. it has got the, – the, some of them have two pins where you just push it into the end of the wood and it gives you the percentage of moisture. Um, the four-pin ones, which are not as common and not more expensive, is is a little more accurate. So a four-pin okay. moisture meter on Amazon for about 20 to 25 bucks or so. Um, they have more sophisticated ones, but you just don't need it. Then you can check your moisture content in your wood, and you want to try to get down as low as you can. I mean, 10 is the top, no more than 10%. I prefer 5 or 3. Now, of course, where we are, it's quite dry in the summer, so sure. our wood can dry out to 1 or 2%, and that burns really efficiently.
0: Yeah, same here. Like, a uh, uh, couple days in a field in our July, and it's, it's as dry as it's going to get, man. It's, it doesn't take long to dry out in a Texas sun. Yeah. Uh, Bonnie says, is there a need to avoid certain wood like cedar or juglone containing wood when making biochar or, uh, will that, uh, which will that basically will the, the, the process of burning it get rid of those chemicals? Like I, I really don't want to be composting black walnut, uh, husk. As,
1: if you yeah. Would think about um, you know, that's a good question. Uh, I don't know what juglon is. So I've certain
0: trees, that. specifically the walnut, pecan, hickory family, okay, uh, okay. produce a substance called juglum, which is an uh, alleopathic thing that prevents certain other species from competing with them.
1: Yes, I know that black walnut does do that. Um, you know, if you've got a very efficient uh, biochar system to make it, you're going to drive all the pathogens and, and all that stuff out. Uh, you're going to burn it up. It's going to go out. Um, it, it all depends on how efficient your, your burn is. So The better the system, the more efficient it'll be. Um, I don't know of any particular research that says don't use these woods for yeah. biochar because nature burns all kinds of trees and creates this biochar, you know, in, in again, in a very loose and not efficient process. But again, nature has so much time to bring it around. Um, so I don't know if I could say that there's any one particular wood that I wouldn't use.
0: I, I would tend to agree with that. Just understanding how the process works, and uh, you talk about, I mean, it it is, it's a chemical that's really in kind of a liquid form. And if you want to talk about something you're going to burn off, uh, you're going to burn that off
1: pretty hard. Can you go think. back? Yeah, go back. Yeah, this one, this question here.
0: Yeah. Go ahead and read that one. Sure. Wild blue whippets says, so biochar could be used to help with runoff in our yard? We live in a flood zone and could incorporate it into
1: the soil. Yes, indeed. Biochar has the ability to hold your nutrients in that soil zone beyond soil without it. And here's an interesting thing here. I don't know if you can see this. Let me turn this light off for a second. Okay, this is a test that was done about 12 years or least ago in uh, Oregon State University. And what we did was we took potted plants. And we uh, put biochar in different ones. And you can see over here on the far, the clear bottles on that far side there on the right, that had a high content of biochar. So what happened was the biochar is in the potted plants. And then we were watering them with the exact same amount of water. But we I didn't do it. Some people that I know did it. And they watered through these potted plants and collected the water that came out of the bottom. The higher the content of biochar, the more clear the water was. The le- with no biochar it was very turbid, so it was a just like immediate slap in the face that, yeah, this definitely you know holds on to your nutrients and so forth. Um, now, in a flood, floody zone, you're probably going to want to use an awful lot of biochar. Mm-hmm. Generally, in let's say a raised bed or a potted plant, or even in the ground. Uh, it would be ideal to have 20% biochar, which is one part biochar to four part soil. That's a hell of a lot of biochar. And that's by volume. By volume. By the yeah. way, very important to mention this. Biochar is sold by volume, not by weight. Mm. If somebody's selling it by weight, they don't understand the reality. And the reality is this. You could take one cubic yard of biochar dry, yeah. which can weigh about maybe 200 pounds, yeah and it can be way up to a thousand yeah if it's wet. funny thing is is yesterday I went to do a delivery of a yard of biochar to somebody in my neighborhood, and it had been sitting out in the rain, and we loaded it into my van with a forklift when we tried to usually I could just yank the bag out by the by the hoops on the top of the super sack, yeah, the two of us could not move this thing one millimeter. It was so heavy. It probably weighed 800 pounds yeah. wet, and yet it could weigh 200 dry. It's
0: so like a 7-to-1 ratio, right? Like a pound of biochar can hold 7 pounds of water or something like that.
1: Yeah, you know, pretty much. Or, you know, that's, that's pretty much uh, how it is. And, again, depending on how much water is in there. Now, when you're shipping biochar, it's shipped by weight because yes. that's how the shipping companies want to know. Sure, But when you're selling it, it should be by volume, not by weight. That that that's a conversation that over the last eight or nine years a group of us have been having, and about 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 eight seven eight years ago something I can't remember exactly, um I basically said to everybody said I don't understand why anybody's talking weight here,
0: nobody. Sure said, so.
1: You know it's it's volume that's what you're paying for the volume of it not the weight of it because you don't want to pay for all that water.
0: Yeah, I was gonna say because the only reason you would do is be nefarious like hey Billy. Go spray some water on the truck and add two hundred pounds to the the delivery, right? Like, because it's like when you buy when you buy shitty meat in the store and it'll say like a liquid has been added to this product, right? Like they injected it with salt water so they could charge you, you know, the price per pound for ham for salt water. That that's that's what that is. Right, exactly. Uh, so, we have what, question. Yeah, we got a few more, and then we'll, 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 we'll cut it. you loose. Um, Take the Ride 23 says, Would biochar work well in a system like the chicken tractor on steroids method? Billy Bond from Perma Pasture Farms talks about I don't see why it wouldn't. I don't know if you're familiar with the terminology there.
1: Oh, yeah, I know what really. a chicken tractor is, yeah.
0: So the chicken tractor on steroids, Jeff Wadden really kind of did this thing after he visited dude doing compost in New England. And basically you're giving the chickens a huge waste stream of, like restaurant waste stream, so you're not feeding them grain, and mm-hmm. they're processing it to a certain point, and then you're moving them on, and you're leaving that behind. But th- that's a that system. People are turning that compost. That's a big reason I don't do it. I don't like to turn compost. But I'd say any composting method, if we add biochar, like I was saying, it'll plug in anything.
1: Well, what I would do with that material that's in the fo- in the in the bedding that's there is I would compost that. Yeah, I would put that into my compost. So with any chicken beds or ducks or whatever animals you have, once they've ingested the biochar and let it out and eaten the food and let it out, um, I wouldn't use that straight. I would go ahead and put that through a regular composting process. And what you would do is every time you move the tractor, you take some raw granular biochar and you sprinkle it on the ground. And as and as you throw the food down and it's decomposing and they're eating it and digesting all of that and it's coming out. You know, I would take I would take that and put it in the compost. But every time I move the tractor around, I would lay another layer of biochar on the ground because the chickens are going to go right for it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The way that system's designed is pretty it's it's for a high volume operation. Mm-hmm. And pretty much every week you're leaving behind a cubic meter of compost as that chicken tractor advances. And then it's once the chickens are gone, then it's handled like a typical, uh, you know, 21 day compost cycle. Again, I'm not big on the labor required for this. Person.
1: Well, here's an interesting thing. Um, probably a dozen years ago in Japan, they did some testing with feeding biochar to chickens. Uh-huh. And they found out some very interesting things. First off, they knew that it would be good for the chickens. You know, they just had that sense. So, yeah. they laid it down, and the chickens pecked it up and brought it in. When they pooped, the ammonia in that caused respiratory and foot diseases to the chickens. That was reduced by uh, about 90%. Could you imagine in very close quarter chicken operations if they laid it all down there? All that, all those vet bills and all those vet things. Yeah. Unbelievable. Now, here's what happened to the chickens. They got healthier, and the eggs, higher omega, higher protein, higher mineral, vitamin content, better shell, better yolk. Even if you're growing really good organic chickens now with a beautiful orangey yolk, you yeah. can take it up another level.
0: Another level.
1: In Europe, anyway, go ahead. 90% of biochar, this is some, some stories that or some uh, papers that were written for you years back, 90% of biochar in Europe goes through a cow first. They feed 2% into the cow's food, goes through their four stomachs. Now, remember, the methane they're pumping out is coming belching out, not farting out. Mm-hmm. And it's in their first two stomachs that that most of that is occurring. The methane dropped dramatically. The sure. animals got so healthy that they gained weight naturally without steroids, hormones, drugs, antibiotics. The vet bills went down. The drug bills went down. Of course, I'm sure that some industry doesn't like this, but it really worked really, really well. And the dairy cows produced more and better milk and the meat cows produced more and better meat. And they still do that to this day. Most of biochar used commercially in Europe, it goes through a cow first. So it has a lot of benefits for pretty much any animal.
0: Yeah, and if you're doing something like a lot of us are, where we're used, our animals come home every night and then they go out and they maybe paddock shift or whatever. If you're Mm -hmm. feeding them that, they're also depositing it all over, perfectly Uh inoculated for you, right? Like, (laughs) I remember Steph Holzer one time, he was talking about one of his systems and he used pigs in it. And, and there was a young girl in the, the the class that I was at in Montana and she you know raised her hand and went through a translator and said, well, what if I don't want pigs? And it took a little bit for him to understand what she was saying. He he basically said, if you do not want the pig, you have to do the pig's job. Yep. See, And I like to reverse engineer and go, well, how many things can I make my animals do for me that they want yeah. to do anyway? Because you're talking about feeding them. And I started putting it in their feed and I, the ducks will eat it, but the chickens literally pick it out. Like yeah. they want it. They'll eat it first. Yep. Like an appetizer or something.
1: There is a guy in Australia named Dolph the Charmaster. Okay. And Dolph is an incredible guy. I, I only know him through, you know, we've never met because I've never been to Australia. But we know each other. We've talked to each other through, you know, communications online. And he has a movie called Avatar. Avatar. And if you look out there, you probably find it somewhere. I don't know where it is. I don't have a link to it on offhand. <laughs> Um, but on it he shows what he does with his cattle he feeds them what he calls a moo shake and it's got biochar it's got minerals it's got molasses to make them enjoy it and he also puts in lots of seeds and he feeds this to them about once a week and as the he moves their paddocks around They're not only fertilizing, they're spreading his seeds. So you talk about animals being, doing your job for you. And he has this on his video. If you look him up, I think he's still on Facebook. I haven't spoken to him or communicated with him in a while, but I never forgot how he did that and what he was doing with it. Now, uh, I was at a conference um, uh, six years ago, a biochar conference. And I was in one of the rooms and somebody was presenting, you know, a story about him and his cattle. And he made a bunch of biochar, not for the cattle, for other yeah. use. And he laid it out on the ground in a big pile to dry out. And about four or five days later, if I remember correctly, he came back and most of it was gone. And he looked over at the cows and you could see it all over their face and their hooks. Oh yeah. yeah. They went right for it. So yeah. every time he came out with that, well, the first couple of times he had to condition reflex them. But once they knew when he was walking out with that big, big uh, tub and laying it down, the cattle came running over to get it.
0: That's interesting.
1: Yeah, it was really funny. His, the, his, uh, the, his cows here, yeah.
0: the fertilizing is better. You can you can seed with it. And I, I love getting animals to do work where you don't feel like you're like forcing it on them, like you just take their natural innate behaviors and let them go do things for you. Like the way I move my ducks around, I used to do fencing and all. And my soil here is in most places about four inches deep. And then it's so, I mean, solid limestone rock. I'm on an old uh, ocean reef from when the great inland sea went through here like 50 million years ago. So yeah. stakes in the ground ain't happening. And so all I do to move them around, I move like I have these water tubs because I don't have big ponds for them. So I move those around and I put their food there. And then that's their area for the day. They're lazy. They go all there and, they hang out and then they go to bed at night. So you could actually just use them to do this work on a broader acreage scale uh-huh. instead of doing it yourself, which is again, if it goes through a duck, if it goes through a cow, if it goes through a
1: goat, kind of that inoculation thing is just fairly well done. Oh, it's that basically fully inoculated at that point, yeah. but yeah. I still would take that material that they're pooping on and, and recompost that again.
0: Oh, when they're in the, when they're in bed, let's say, yeah, but I'm talking about when they're free-ranging. Like, I'm not going oh, yeah, no, to run around. yeah, no, then it. just
1: let it go. Yeah. <laughs> Leave it out, Yeah, they're right? doing all that work. It's pretty amazing.
0: Yeah. yeah. So let's do a couple more, and we'll let you go. Michael, <laughs> other Michael, says, greenhouse gases from compost. I've never heard of that, and I think that's something that people don't understand. People are, like, it's a good thing to make compost. We're not saying it's it true. isn't. But it, it when you have all that heat, you're basically cooking, you're burning, as you're binding nitrogen and carbon in a cycle, and there's a significant amount of that that off gases. And and that's, it's pretty evident when you hold your hand over it and you feel that heat that other things are going with it. And yeah, mixing that compost in, but you also mentioned capping it. We can actually, and then that stuff that's going up into the atmosphere, it's not just bad for the atmosphere. It's good for the plants. It's good for the ground, right? So we can capture it so that it can be
1: used. We're sequestering all that. Yeah. Interestingly enough, um, as I compost, I have a uh, I, I keep my compost pile flat. Yeah. You know, it's 10 feet long, six feet wide, and anywhere from two and a half to five feet tall, depends on how much material's in there. And yeah. I'm incorporating biochar into it with layering, not turning. But I, every time we put a little material, we layer biochar. So we're doing like a lasagna layering constantly in our composting, and it's all kind of blending together over time, especially when we harvest. But I thought about it, and I said, one day, this is going back a few years, and I said, let me put a blanket of biochar on the top. It's got to work. It's got to collect some of those greenhouse gases. So I was at a a conference at UC Riverside, and I was telling one of the professors that. He's a compost specialist. And I told him what I was doing. He looked at me, and he goes, wow, why didn't I think of that? (laughs) So that's just one little thing that it, it's just this common sense when you're a person that tinkers and you're a person that's, you know, kind of aware of stuff, you know, all us do-it-yourselfers. These things are common, just common sense to us, you know, and some people will have an experience to go, oh, really? Is that really work? Yeah, it works. It's, you know, it's so. Yeah. So. um by incorporating the biochar into the compost, you're going to sequester some of those greenhouse gases, and by putting the blanket on top, and it's only like an eighth to a quarter inch. you don't need a whole lot. yeah uh, We didn't mention earlier though the percentage of biochar in the compost. This is a pretty important question that I haven't heard anybody ask as of yet, and the range is anywhere from five to twenty percent, although you could do more um, five is not much. I like to be about twenty percent fifteen to twenty in there, so that when I harvest my compost, I can actually see the little granules of of biochar in there. And again, we're adding rock dust, we're adding EM1, Bokashi, I mean coffee, uh, manures, I mean so many different things. The more broad spectrum you put into your compost, the more you get out of it. So just simply composting food waste and yard waste is workable, but if you want to take it to another level, add more ingredients that are in there just make sure you maintain your 50% carbon and your 50% nitrogen as much as possible.
0: Yeah. realize too That percentage of your compost is then going to be watered down by the percentage it is of like a grow bed when you put it out, right? It's, they, so if you're at 20% of carbon or biochar in your compost, once that goes out to the garden, you're not at 20% in your garden now. So that's no, one no, thing to no, be that high. Right.
1: But it gives you the opportunity To keep adding biochar to your soils. Sure. Because, you know, you can't really overdo it. There's no real point at which biochar is going to cause a problem. Now, is there a point at which it won't do any more? Yeah. Sure. Um, What that that is, is not, and there's no one answer to it because it depends on the biochar, the feedstock, the soil. There's so many variables that will change that around that we can't just say, oh, yeah, it's this or that.
0: Sure. Uh, And Kay Bonk's asking about rock dust or stone dust. Like, I've heard you mention that several times today. Like, all of those things are good to include in this inoculation. Uh, I've used kelp meal. I've used uh, liquid seaweed uh, as part of my inoculation because there's a ton of minerals there.
1: Yeah. So what happens is a friend of mine um, several years back, probably eight years ago, came to me and he said, yeah, we're, you know, mineralizing soil. And we started to blend a few different ones together, azomite, granite, basalt, uh, leonardite, a few different things. And he said it works much better it gives a broader spectrum. So I started playing with it, and we put out a product called uh, Blue Sky uh, Complex Rock Dust Blend. And we started out with seven, then we went to nine, then we went to 11. We went to 13, now we're only at 12 because one of the ingredients just became very difficult to find so we blend all these things together and we pack it up in five pound bags that does 250 square feet and uh there's quite a few different ingredients in there i think it's yeah there we go the label is much nicer we have a new label for it <laughs> um also it says on this package it could be good for three to five years it's really only one to three years we, we we've we redetermined that um and you use about a pound for every 50 square feet at a at a minimum application rate and this stuff is off the charts, amazing. Now, when we do growing beds for food, we use this. But when I work on landscape jobs, this is too expensive for that, so we sure. just use azomite by itself. But azomite, granite—I uh, mean, there's just so many different things in here, and it just creates a much broader spectrum. Minerals are so important for root zones, microbiology, and creating cell structure. All life on earth requires minerals to build cell structure. So minerals are very important. most people are really not mineralizing their soils or analyzing them. I don't do that much analyzation of soils anymore, except on certain projects where the the, the client will come to me with their anal, anal anal analyzation of their and the report, the soil report. And I will read that, and then provide them with the proper materials to go into that particular location. Okay. But yeah, so get, you know, very important with the minerals.
0: We'll sit two more quick ones, and we'll cut you loose here. Um, uh, Green Country says, "I want to blend it with cedar oil and brush it on the squash vine." He's talking about wood vinegar. I remember when he asked that. Uh, squash vine borers are the devil. They are Satan incarnate yeah. if, if they live where you are. I was planning on using just a basic spray of that on my Tromboschino this year. They're already pretty resistant to vine borers. They only have a small part of the vine that's thick enough that they want to go in there. The rest of it's kind of really, it's a sea macheta species. It's really dense. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to me, when I heard that it would repel pests, I'm like, well, it can't hurt anything.
1: No, it, well, the the bamboo v- wood vinegar is great for that. Um, when I spray it on, I actually spray three. My basic foliar spray For powdery mildew or anything that I'm working with is um, a half ounce of bamboo vinegar per gallon, one ounce of EM1, if you're familiar with Effective Microbes First Generation. Um, By the way, some people make EM, and every time you make it from using a little bit from the previous batch, it becomes EM1, 2, 3, 4, and so forth. Okay. Um, And then I put in a product that we're the only ones that have it. It's a proprietary product called HyperDrive. And we had an ounce of that. Now, hyperdrive is amazing stuff. The scientist who created, it came to me several years back and said, I don't want to go to big corporations. I don't, I hate them. I'm an anti-corporate guy. They always try to screw me. I want you because I've, you've been come to us through recommendation that we want you to distribute this stuff for us. So it co- it also turns out that this scientist was one of the scientists on the team of dr higa who created em1 25 years ago so he came to me with this stuff and he told me it it will act as both a surfactant and as an adjutant to take whatever nutrient or biology you're having your spray and bring it into the cell structure and i said to him i said listen i'm not a scientist but that doesn't exist he goes well it does now so he sent me Hmm. some and i started playing with it this was the first generation of it four years ago. We're on our fourth generation of hyperdrive now, and it is amazing. It takes stuff into the cell structure, whether you're doing compost teas. It doesn't matter what foliar you're using. It takes it in. It also has micro and micronutrients and a little bit of neem oil for some protection, and you use one ounce of that per gallon of water, and that's my basic foliar application. Sometimes I'll add a little fish seaweed to it, or some other liquid nutrient or biology. If you're making compost tea, you take a gallon of the tea and mix the ingredients, the bamboo vinegar, the hyperdrive and the EM one in that after it's brewed, not while it's it's brewed, after it's brewed and then use it very quickly. Um, I don't do compost tea, although I am totally for it. I just don't have the time because of all my responsibilities and such. But, um, You know, the the, the issues with composting or the three things that you need to conquer that you're never really told is first when you're brewing it. A lot of times you'll buy this little kit and it'll say, you know, add this bag of compost and worm castings into the water, bubble it for 24 hours and then you're ready to go. Well, you don't really know when it hit its peak. You know, sometimes it goes past it and starts eating itself up. Sometimes it didn't get quite there how are you going to know that with a clock that says 24 hours you know you're done so you have to kind of analyze it to make sure you're there so brewing of it is is uh, an important factor to get it to the right point secondly is the using of it now they you're, generally your the the instructions say use it within 6 to 8 hours of making it well i think it's 2 to 3 hours personally i think you need to use it much faster than letting it wait around because depending upon the temperature and the humidity and whatever you know, it could start dying off much quicker than that. So using it very quickly is another important point. And then the third one is the type of sprayer you're going to use. If you use a spray system where there's an impeller and the liquid goes through it and it's getting beaten up like a like a blender, you're just chopping all your fungi
0: up. right? Yeah, yeah and
1: yeah. the orifice that it comes out of can't be too fine because it'll beat it up there. And by the time it hits the plant, it's half dead. So if you can brew it to the right point, use it quickly, and have the right spraying apparatus, you can get much more out of your compost teas than if you ignore those three things.
0: I get why people do it, because you take this little bit of compost, and now you can use it on a broader acreage. But if you're making lots of compost, and you're a backyard producer, to me, just you use the compost.
1: Yeah, yeah. Now, also another thing about foliar sprays. Now, a lot of my friends who do compost teas, they say uh, they can spray it on in the middle of the day. It's no problem because it sticks so well to the leaves. Um, I'm of the mind that you need to do your foliar applications at the end of the day because the stomata, which is the pores of the leaf, this is a stomata from a leaf, those pores are closed up during photosynthesis. And when the sun goes down, they dilate open and that's the time you Mm -hmm. want to do it. Now, some people say, oh, I'll do it before the sun comes up. Yeah, but you only have a couple hours before they close up again. I always found that the best time to do your foliar application, as soon as the sun goes off those leaves, in about a half hour or less, the the, the tomato is going to dilate open, and you do it. So I prefer doing them at that time as opposed to during the day. Another problem could be is if the water beads up on a leaf, it can be a magnifier to burn a little hole through it, that's not that common, but it is possible. It happens. It definitely happens. Yeah.
0: Well, uh, Michael's website again, folks, Blue Sky Biochar. I'll have links to all of the fascinating stuff, including the books he mentioned, everything like that. So if you are listening to this in your car on the way home from work, you don't have to worry about pulling over, writing it down. I'll take care of uh, making sure that all that information is available. There's a link if you're watching the video. It's one of the first links below in the video notes. Uh, it leads over to where the audio notes will be about an hour from right now, because I haven't put it up yet, if you're listening to the live. And then all of that data will be there for you. Michael, this has been a fantastically uh, interesting discussion. I Thank definitely you. want to have you on again. You, you, Everything that I thought you'd be in more for the audience, uh, I really appreciate it. And I think that this is a subject I'm going to be digging deep into over time for the audience, because it really is kind of a miraculous product. And it, it, it's also, you mentioned yeah. somebody saying, why didn't I think of that? It's like, there's so much of this, like, why haven't we been using this uh, in, in recent times? Cause it was, like you said, used in man's history for millennia. But at this point we have so many problems that this doesn't necessarily fix them all, but it addresses them all to some degree. If we would just,
1: implement it's a, it's a major movement forward. Um, I would encourage everyone listening or who will listen in the future <laughs> Excuse me. To go to my website, blueskybirchar. dot com. Go to the video and podcast page, and at a minimum, watch the first three videos. Now, of course, I encourage you to watch more of them, but those first three are pretty good videos. We do our own uh, in house production of them, and uh, I think you'll get a lot out. You're going to learn so much. It took me years to learn what's in that information in those three videos.
0: Well, again, Michael, I appreciate you. And being also, awesome. I'm sorry. to
1: no, um, I don't mind talking on the phone with people, so you okay. can email me, you can text me, you can contact Be me careful with through that the website. Yeah. <laughs> but if you do need to call now, if for some reason I don't answer, leave a message yeah. because my phone rings yeah. a lot, or I'm in the field and I'm not answering, yeah. but I will pretty much get back to everybody within a, a couple of days, if not sooner.
0: Awesome. Well, I appreciate it. Thank able. you so
1: much for this opportunity. I can't tell you how excited I am. My heart soars like a hawk. <laughs> you know where that's from?
0: Uh, I no, I do not. Is that Last of Mohicans?
1: No, no, from Little Big Man. Oh, Okay, okay. That that movie about the uh, with Dustin Hoffman where the uh, the uh, chief yeah said, yeah you make my heart soar like a hawk.
0: <laughs> well, cool, man. Again, thanks for being with us
1: today. You're welcome, Jackie. Take care, man.
0: Bye now. So, guys, I told you that was going to be fantastic. I built that up over a week. I hope it led up to your expectations. Mm -hmm. If it didn't, go listen again because you missed it. Anyway, I will definitely have Michael on again sometime in the future. I want to remind you guys real quick here as I wrap up today. If you want to help support this show and the work that I do, one of the ways you can do that, I have a a page on my site uh, that you can look up anytime called TSPAS, T-S-P-A-Z, com. You see all the products I recommend. Same one I recommended yesterday because we went long. I don't want to belabor this, but I just wanted to add something to it. These little uh, rope adjusters is what they are. They're little lightweight rope hangers that allow you to adjust the grow lights in your seat starting system up and down very, very easily. Uh, the vendor I had up yesterday sold out after we ran their product. Uh, but like I said, a million people make them all the same way. I found another one brought that around for you again today, but some people have popped up with some multi uses on them. I'm, Looking to hear what you use them for. One person said they're great inside, like their chicken brooders and stuff, to change the height of their waterers. So there's a lot of stuff you can do with them. But remember, you can help support us and the work that we do. Anytime you shop online, just start your shopping at tspaz.com first. Beginning, beginning we went so long today, I'll leave it at that. Again, I hope you enjoyed today's show. I've got a great show for you tomorrow. Nicole, awesome sauce. Nicole sauce herself. From the expert panel will be with us all day tomorrow in another live stream. Because we didn't do a Bitcoin episode today, even though I'm rocking the Bring Back Seventh Generational Bitcoin T-shirt out of the TSP TSP Swag Shop, um, I will be doing a Bitcoin episode on Thursday. It'll be a solo show, just me. We'll be talking about some of the FUD that's in Bitcoin, some of the future-looking things, building for the future, and I bet you I'll even figure out a way to talk a little bit about biochar in that episode. Plus. I have an interesting lesson about the student being ready, or the student maybe not being ready when they seek the teacher on that episode as well. Friday expert council QA, and then we'll do it all again the following week, starting all over again. Thank you for being with us today. I appreciate you. Sorry we didn't get to everybody's questions. This one opened up tons of cans of worms. Pun intended. I will catch you guys tomorrow with another episode. You down. Are they gonna bail you out?